What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And good evening, Laguna Beach. It is 8 o'clock now, and your host is Billy Freed here at uh, KXFM Radio. And my guest tonight is none other than the notorious RBB, the Ronnie Beaven Barry. How are you, man? <laughs> I'm good. I like that. Yeah, you know, it's a sort of homage to RPG, RBG. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, welcome to the show. I know you've been here before at this radio station because I saw you posted a picture with Wendy uh, here in the studio. Uh, so you, you're familiar with the station. Yeah, yeah, we love your station. It's great. The building's great. And I met a few of the other guys there that have their stations, and everybody's cool. Yeah, it's a great little community service we have. That might be one of the few things that you guys didn't have in Laguna Beach in the late 60s, early 70s, your own radio station, or maybe you did. No, no. Only up in Hollywood there was a few free radio stations, but we didn't have anything. You know, we all have this nostalgia for Laguna when you were when you were here. Then, you know, the people that have lived here for 20, 30, 40 years, 50 years even, remember a time in this town where it was far more rootsy, and open-minded, and uh, bohemian, artistic, creative, and, of course, money got in the way of all that. And, uh, you know, as the real estate appreciated in town, it kind of forced a lot of the creative set out of here. And I don't know if you were experiencing that way back when you were here in Laguna, but um, maybe we should start from the beginning. Um, You know, there's a lot of... uh, There's a a lot of stories out about the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, which was, um, for many years, nobody knew if they actually existed or not, and there was a code of omerta amongst you guys, for obvious reasons. Um, But recently, a turn of events, people are now telling their stories. And and why why is that, Ronnie? Well, times are changing, for one thing. But um, I don't know. It just seems, as we got older... Yeah, we look back on it, it seems like maybe we should let people know what happened. We were very secretive in everything we did, and it wasn't common knowledge, and we were at the root of a giant movement and a time when people were looking for freedom and freedom of consciousness and freedom of life. It was a different time then. Right. Who were you? Okay, I I think a good way to frame this interview is... Clearly, the Brotherhood is closely associated with psychedelics, and particularly LSD, um, which was legal uh, in the early to mid-60s, and a lot of uh, 
creative people were experimenting with it and uh, and having experiences that they wanted to really be able to get their heads around uh, of, of elevated consciousness. And um, I'd like to sort of talk about Ronnie pre-LSD and then post-LSD. Who were you before you discovered this uh, this this medicine? Well, I was... You know, just trying to make my way through life. I didn't get to really go to college, um, but I landed a job in an engineering firm, and I was—I became a draftsman, and I had actually a pretty good future until the movement came along, and I just totally walked away from all of it. Do you, can you recall for us the the moment, the uh, the aha moment for you when you said, "I don't want to lead the life I'm leading"? Well. Yeah, you can come down. If you want to come down to the exact point, it's very complicated. And what happened was when we started taking the LSD once a week and started becoming liberated and understanding about consciousness and where everything was going, um, you, you know, that was an evolution. It took months and months for us to you know, first dawn on us what's going on and then learn to, how to work with it and then to discover Eastern teachings and get some guidance and then really figure it all out. So it wasn't an instantaneous, hey, I found God, I'm quitting my job and dropping out. Right. It was more of an evolutionary thing. But seriously, as far as I go, since you asked the question, I was working in engineering in Fullerton and uh, that was the brand, the church in Majeska had burned, and that was the exodus for the Brotherhood to Laguna Beach. And shortly after that happened, my good friend Pete Amaranthos was shot in the back right in Laguna Beach over a pound of hash. The police shot him. Yeah. And at that point, I thought, you know, I can't be here working and paying taxes and supporting the police that now are not only arresting all my friends, they're killing them. Mm-hmm. So that was my break point. But but you were on this path of LSD. I want to be clear because a lot of people associate it with parties and concerts and music and all of that. But you guys really early on were treating it as a sacrament, and you were taking it quite seriously. What this was, how it was expanding your mind, your perception of the universe and and, and the world, and and so um, clearly. You didn't want to be an engineer anymore on the straight linear path. You were exploring Eastern philosophy, spirituality. You mentioned early on uh, joining the Self-Realization Fellowship, SRF, and uh, learning to chant and do breath work. And these are all fascinating to me because we're sort of reintroducing ourselves to this today. You know, people are finally discovering the value of calming your nervous system through breath work or yoga or meditation. You guys were on this 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Yeah, but there's something you have to understand. At that, at where we were, because LSD is such a fast track, it doesn't require you to meditate for 12 hours a day and to drop out or, you know, go to sensual deprivation or do all the things that has been done in the past, what yogis do to become enlightened. You, you could take LSD with a person that knows what they're doing, and they'll show you God. Right. So at that time, you actually, the world was in a situation where you could carry on as an engineer or as a draftsman or as a worker. And, and to be truthful, all of us in the Brotherhood at that time when LSD was legal, we were all working. 
We were all in had jobs in society, and it would have been a completely different thing if they hadn't have made LSD illegal. And it was quite questionable at the time. It was uh, something that the whole country was questioning on how valuable is it? You know, should we continue, you know, uh, experimenting, discovering what it can do? And the truth of it, it just happened another way, which was a surprise to us where they just made it completely illegal. Yeah. And, of course, there was a lot of brainwashing with that. and A lot of things they said happened that didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but... It would have been a different thing for the Brotherhood had they not made it illegal. We would have gone on. We would have probably created centers where people could come and find out, you know, find enlightenment within themselves, find out the truth about life. And, you know, once you've had this experience and it makes an impression on you when you really see that we really truly are all one and that the divine energy is inside every one of us, uh, it changes you and makes you a different person. Yeah, no question. And that could have been that could have spread across the world. And it that, could have become. And and that was uh, truly the goal of the Brotherhood, correct? You you guys really wanted to turn on, just like Timothy Leary did. Uh, you wanted everybody to have this experience. Of course, that's what we wanted. We yeah. wanted to show everyone in the world, and we were open to it. And after we got a handle on it, we started being able to work with it and understood what was going on and learning the process. Our goal really was to take out as many people with us because for some reason we could show people that went with us the experience. Yeah. They'd go into nature with us and lay down, and they'd leave with us. We'd all go somewhere for several hours, and then after that we'd re-enter into our bodies, and then you're in some special state of awareness where you understand a lot of things. Right. A lot of things, how the universe works, what's inside you, how everything's connected, it reveals itself. Yeah. And then as you're re-entering, you structure structure yourself, you concentrate on what you want to be. And you think that way, and then as you re-enter, it kind of makes impressions in your mind, and that's kind of where you take off from for that time. And I will say it wasn't everlasting. You know, it it was something just like anything else that over time dwindles. But if you were to reassociate yourself with that quite often, it would never really leave you, and you actually would leave a different life. Yeah. So take us back to your initial encounter with the Brotherhood, I mean, or with the guys and and ladies who formed the Brotherhood. Um, The seminal person in this was John Griggs. And you mentioned in your book which I, I should plug, Brotherhood Hashish, that's why we're talking, um, that he was the most spiritual, enlightened person uh, you had ever met. And it seems like everybody said that about him, including Timothy Leary. Um, you didn't actually go into why and how. I was curious of what made him the most enlightened person. I mean, he was a guy who grew up in Anaheim. He was a wrestler. He was kind of a punk, as I read his early days. He was getting in street fights. But something overtook him when he experienced LSD, and he became um, an apostle, so to speak. Well, John's transformation wasn't an instant thing, and we all have come to realize this. We've been yogis many, many times. We actually were spiritually, quite spiritually advanced. We entered into these Western bodies, and you might just say that LSD woke us up. Mm, I like that. And John was the most advanced spiritual person I've never met. 
And is that because he came from in a pre in a past life, a, a bodhisattva, a Buddha? Oh, of course, of course, of course. And you yeah. know what? He died young, and and you might know that many many teachers and prophets die young. Right. Exactly. It's common. Um. So he so he was really a magnetic personality. He brought people in. He was humble. He was cool, and he just made you he made you feel special right i mean he had a, a way he had a magnetism with everybody he met that's true and but you have to understand too that we all exist within one consciousness and johnny was so strong within that consciousness that you would feel them in your own consciousness right and uh, of course so you you talked about the migration uh to laguna beach there was you but the brotherhood was formed before they all came to Laguna, right? I mean, you mentioned We had a, Majesca we had a year in Majesca. Yeah, we had a year there. And you were part of that? Yeah. You lived there? I lived nearby. I lived in the next canyon over in Silverado Canyon. And were you still an engineer at that point? Yes. So five days a week, you would uh, put on your, your, your pen protector and your tie and your starchy shirt and go up to Fullerton, and then on the weekends, you'd lay down in the fields and take acid. Yep. That's wild. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's you know, at the time it seemed pretty cool. Pretty normal. You could you could function in both worlds. Yeah, and everybody was pretty open to us at that time. We talked freely about LSD to anybody we saw. Yeah. It and wasn't you know, there wasn't any stigma to it. That's right, words didn't matter. You want anyway. Right. So then there was this the this move to Laguna and suddenly and I'm I might get the chronology wrong, but um you guys came together and, and really started some business enterprises that were illegal, but you were generating income to further your LSD experiences and distribute it to the world. And somehow along that way, you decided, and I'd love to hear about when you first got this idea, because your exploits are just stunning to me at a young age, 20, 21 years old, that you decide you're going to go to Afghanistan and smuggle the finest hashish uh, into America, and nobody had done that up to that time. Is that right? Well, not really. I wasn't the first one. And at, the truth of it is the people that discovered Afghanistan, and I, I, I want to interject right here before we go any further. Sure. The, the reason we went to Afghanistan is because they have the very best hash in the whole world, yes. and there's no doubt about it. And yes. the reason that is is most of the people there the Afghanis there were of the Sufis. They were Muslim, but they were Sufis. And the Sufis do things. They have, you know, you've heard about the twirling der dervishes. and yep. the, they, do, uh, they do different things to make them trance. But it's in Afghanistan, they smoke hash. Mm. And it wasn't like they smoked it all day long, but, you know, at night or on the holidays or whatever, they'd get together. And that was why they loved us, because we'd smoke with them, and we'd, we'd all leave just like we did on LSD. And would they, that. what did they do when they were on hash? Would they chant, sing? What kind of things? No, no. They just emptied their mind and, and meditated like we did. Wow. So they were, no, they were very Yeah, they were very similar to us. But anyway, yeah. my brother and Travis, uh, we had one pair, one, two guys out of the Brotherhood went to Nepal, and they took uh, golf clubs with them, and they cut off the bottom of the golf clubs, so they were short, and they made a pony bottom in the bottom of their golf club's bag, and they brought them back to America. I don't know, what, 25 pounds of Nepalese or something? Yeah. So that was our first real exposure to hashish. 
But I have to add, I have to interject here. I'm sorry, but okay, golf clubs in, in Nepal that that didn't raise any eyebrows. Like these were Western tourists traveling to Nepal to play golf. Hey, well, there's way there's one way worse than that. Travis drove from Germany to all the way to Pakistan with two surfboards on top of his Volkswagen. Of course, who would in the winter? In the winter. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, people do strange things. Anyway. <laughs> They got the hash back here, and Ricky and Travis found out about it. And Ricky had just turned 18, my brother. And they took off with whatever money they could grab, not much. And they went to Germany, and they bought an old wrecked car. But, you know, they were going to Nepal to go get the hash. And on the way there, they met this couple, and they told man, if you guys are going for a hashish, you have to go to Afghanistan. And so they stopped in Afghanistan, and that's when they found our connection that turned out to be the connection for the whole brotherhood. That was the Tokai brothers? Yes. And they were, well, I don't know. You know, details are details. The one Tokai brother, I never even met him in my life. He worked for the government in Kabul, and the only reason he got pulled in was when Hayatullah, who was our connection, came to America. He had to get passports and stuff, and his brother worked at the embassy, so he came with him. That's how he got exposed and called them our our connection. Everything else, Emmanuel, I think, was the guy. But I we never even met him. He was not involved with this at all. But anyway, yes, the Toki brothers. The other one actually was Nazarula that I don't talk about. Yeah. And um, and they sent that hashtag. Well, that's they sent it to me. That's when I picked it up at the airport. It's in the movie in the movie Orange Sunshine. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so and that was I wrote it. Yeah, I wrote about it in the book, and I picked up that load, and that really was the first Afghani hash to come to America. Right. And your name was on the line because you had to go to the L.A. Harbor and, and land that stuff. It was in your name, right? That's right. That must have been a scary moment. Well. The golf clubs? When No. <laughs> no, no that, this was that the beat-up car. The instruments. It came in the instruments. Oh, right, right, right. On the drums and the and the. Um, Sitars, and, and what yeah. a story, because, uh, you know, they had me there for hours and hours. But um, anyway, that was the first half that came in. And then after that, uh, I one more guy went over there. I think Brenny went over there. And then um, they managed to get a Volkswagen. They did get it back here, but I never saw it. And then before that got back, I took off to Germany with a friend of mine, and I bought a Volkswagen in Germany, drove it to Kandahar, filled it up. And that was the start of my smuggling. I think I ended up doing, what, 29 vehicles? Yeah. I think I built and smuggled nine different vehicles, each one getting bigger, larger. Yeah, yes, and we're going to get to that. Okay. Let, okay. But let's talk about this drive for a second because it, it boggles my mind. You're, you're starting in Germany, and I'm just looking at a map here and imagining you're going through, at the time, now it's Croatia, but Yugoslavia, I assume, so yes. Albania, Greece, Turkey, uh, I guess you bypass Syria and you make a right turn into Iraq. Or no, you just go right from Turkey Iran. into Iran. Right. Yeah. And then over to yeah, Afghanistan. Right the tip you can get in there. Yeah, and then you cross and, over to Afghanistan. And then we either had to go into Pakistan and down to Karachi to ship it out of Karachi, or we'd go across into India, and then we had several ports we could go what, what an experience for uh, a little kid from Southern California <laughs> who's never traveled. I It saddens me to think how impossible that is today and how corrosive our world has become where, you know, a Westerner couldn't make that drive safely. And yet, in the time that you did it, I, I want to just think of it as this beautiful era when 
you know, they these people embraced you, and you were a long-haired hippie, maybe not at that moment, but it's certainly you grew your hair long at some point, and you're driving through, and most of these people probably knew what you were up to, but... Um, but you were welcomed, right? You were, I mean, it was a warm embrace from all of these Middle Eastern countries. Yes, it sure was. It was wonderful. And we were, you know, we, we slept in our car out in the desert every night. And you, and you, you know, actually, and you actually always had a little bit of LSD with you, if I'm not mistaken, because you never wanted to pass up a great opportunity for an extraordinary trip. Yeah, that's true. And it was easy to carry. It was so small <laughs> and, you know. Tripping in Iran, I can't even get my head around what that's like, but I bet the skies and the desert, I mean, one thing I love about your book, Ronnie, is that, I don't know if you had, it was strenuous for you to recreate all of this, but you, your memory seems razor sharp, you remember all these places you talk about, I mean, you really took advantage of this trip, you weren't just going in a straight line and then leaving, you were actually learning, you were in, encountering these ancient cities and studying their traditions and and what a gift that was no it was amazing and you know it's a time gone by and we'll see if it ever becomes peaceful that way the the way it was then but truthfully it has to become peaceful we keep going the way we are we're all going to self-destruct so the only real forward if we have a forward is to become peaceful again yes and people are people you yes, know they are. we all want the same thing yeah, everyone does everywhere. And, you know, at the time, you know, it was weird because they loved Kennedy. And everywhere you'd go, they'd want to talk about Kennedy. It was the weirdest thing. That's interesting. And and um, then when you're in the, the, like, Turkey and Iran, Afghanistan, the school kids would walk around, would follow you around all day because they wanted to practice their English. Yeah. And, and uh, it was just an amazing time. Wendy got taken in by a family one time and spent several days at their house. They picked up a hitchhiker, gave him a ride, and when they got there, this was on Iran. They wouldn't let her leave. And then um, let's let's have, wait a second. Were, let's have a shot out here for your when you say Wendy. We're referring to your longtime wife. And sure, she, want to say hi, Wendy? Yeah, hi. Hi, Wendy. <laughs> I, you know, this isn't just Ronnie's story, too, so don't let him hog the mic, you know, uh, or the phone. We want to hear from you. Well, I drove, I drove a, a Volkswagen from France to Afghanistan. With whom? Uh, with uh, a, a guy. Right, so you weren't alone. Uh, no, I wasn't alone, but we drove it to Afghanistan, and then we were in the, Ronnie mentions it in his book, where if they're loading other vehicles, we called it stand in line stand. <laughs> and so we were in line, and it turned out that Haitula and I became really close friends, and he invited us to stay at his compound. So we were one of the only people I know of that ever actually stayed at his compound. And um, I got to be with his wives, and I was so naive at the time, I didn't realize they were all his wives, and mm. those were all his children, and they just all became my girlfriends. Even though we didn't speak the same language, I was back there, you know, cutting up carrots and potatoes and taking care of the kids. And, you know, I just fit right in, even though they didn't speak a word of English and I didn't speak a word of Farsi. But it was still very friendly. And then Haitula, I could I could go in between both places and I didn't realize they couldn't. Yeah. So you could uh, hang out with the men, but they couldn't like at mealtime. Yeah, I, go, I could 
Yeah, I could go smoke the hookah, the giant hookah. I had a stand on a big, they got me a big box to stand on. Did you have to uh, wear big, conservative clothing? Did you have to wear the hajib and all that? I, I was so naive. I didn't even know about that. Haitula did give me a scarf to wear on my head, but it wasn't like a, a, a headscarf like the other women, that I didn't even know the other women wore those until we went shopping, and they were all, Covered. they all had their full habib thingy on, and it was challenging when it was time to go. I was like, okay, let's, oh, God, they all look the same. <laughs> but I just, started, I just started waving my hands, and then all my girlfriends came, you well, know, to the van. And we well, took now, we all, now we all look the same with our masks on, too. So it's, you know, it's... <laughs> yeah, yeah, they don't have to worry about wearing masks. Yeah. But anyway... But, but when you were in their was, home, uh, they could take their headscarves off, and you could see their faces. Yeah, I had only, yeah, I had only seen them basically in, in their lay clothes. Mm. in regular clothes yeah so i'd only seen them dressed like i was dressed and then when i got the headscarf i was supposed to wear it around my head i guess but i like my hair was down to my knees at that time and i would just tie it around my ponytail or you know, I right. and i sure hi Jilla was just going oh my god this girl so you and ronnie didn't or you knew each other at this time but you weren't romantically involved uh, we crossed paths all over the world. We just had a lot of karma to work out with other people that we were really glad we worked out with other people. So when we got together, it was a clean slate. Yeah. And uh, and that was it. But you were on parallel paths. I mean, you're doing that. You were in the same. Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. A parallel path. I was even living in Detroit at uh, the age of, of 14 when I started the SRF lessons. No uh, When I went on a, on a trip to the Detroit Museum of Art. And SRF was having a thing there in the back room, and I heard him, and I wandered in, and then I was like, oh, my God, this is so cool. And I signed up for the lessons. So he and I were both taking the lessons at the same time, but on the opposite sides of America. Wow. Talk about and I'm, kismet. I'm younger than he is. Yeah. And, and what brought you out to California? Uh, marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I hitchhiked. I hitchhiked here from Detroit because for the ninety-five dollar plane ticket, you could buy a kilo of weed. So we opted to hitchhike and get the extra kilo of weed to bring it back to Detroit to sell or to yeah yeah yeah. So initially, uh, wow, you're I made a, enterprising. Yeah, I made a couple trips uh, back and forth, and then um, you know I I just realized, oh my God, I have to live in in San Francisco. So okay. I lived in San Francisco for a while, and it was, uh, I think, in Orange Sunshine, they, they tell the story how I I uh, ran into the Afghani hash in Detroit. And we had been doing, the group I was with, we had been doing Moroccan. Mm. And that wasn't, um, you know, we thought that that was hash. And then when I walked in and smelled that Afghani and saw it, I was just told the guy, man, yeah, what do, what do you want to turn me on to this? Nothing like it. <laughs> Um, where you got got this, and then I started going down to to Laguna. So was this I, uh, around the the late sixties, early seventies? Yeah, 60s. yeah, <laughs> late late sixties or early seventies, and um, and then I I went to the ranch on a kind of just a, I was actually out there scoring, and I was invited to the ranch for Thanksgiving. That's when I met Carol and Barbara. Okay, and we're talking about and, Carol Griggs. Yeah, John's and, wife. Uh, 
we just hit it off and everybody else went in the living room and I went in the kitchen and we just cooked all that for like 150 people. And then they said, stay the night. And I stayed the night and we, they wanted me to move in. And I said, well, I'm kind of on a business trip right now. I got, go. <laughs> I got serious I came, business. Yeah. But yeah. What, I came what, back. I, I spent time in the Canyon before I moved to the ranch. So how did, I mean, San Francisco, you know, everybody thinks summer of love and the whole hate uh, scene, but, you know, not much is known about Laguna and, in your case, Majesca, but it sounds like what what, what you guys created was an incredible community. Oh, totally. I loved the, when I met the Brotherhood, and I had a beautiful family in San Francisco, but the Brotherhood, to me, because of... uh, they were just on the same trip I was with really wanting to turn on the world, stop all the wars, uh, get raise the consciousness. They were up at the ranch. Everybody was monogamous and uh, into families, and it was just it was the most beautiful time ever. Wow. So really and integritous. I mean, people, this was, was not a comp, this was not a uh, cult in any way. And, and uh, with, no with a guru, way. it was a hard work and farm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you guys were into like growing your own food and organic and, and, you know, way, way before uh, it's time. Right. I mean, you guys really wanted uh, to be before. self-sufficient. Yep. 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 Way before. And it was hard because there was no electricity. So we were doing laundry and stuff, but Anyway, here's Ronnie back. I don't want to hog his whole... Oh, well, really enjoyed talking to you, Wendy. Stick around if you would. Yeah. I, I, know, I... I know you're fact-checking your husband every time he says something. Yeah. I can hear you in the background. Oh, funny. Sorry. <laughs> it's I'm all right. Enough. Yeah. But okay. I think it's amazing that you did this trip, too. And, and, I mean, how many days does it take to drive from Western Europe to Afghanistan? What did we figure out? It can take, you know, a long time. It all depends... You yeah. know, it's twice as it, from Europe to Afghanistan. It's twice as far as across the United States. Yeah, and and we were we're on highways. We were on gravel roads from the time you hit Istanbul. You were on gravel roads, dirt roads all the way. Yeah, and you're in so, your your favorite vehicle of choice. I read was the Volkswagen yeah, camper van. Volkswagen camper. We loved them. Which, what and about in still, the high winds and going over those mountain passes? Don't those things get a little a little scary? Don't no, they sway in the never, wind? No, we did. They did pretty good, and you know what's great about them because it's so hot that they don't overheat. Mm-hmm. You know, so you don't have the problem with the radiator. They're indestructible. They're great. Yeah, so but you- the Volkswagen van and the double cab was the one that they started doing the most of at the end. It got real popular because you could put seven hundred pounds in it. Yeah, and you got to and- know Kabul. That that was your ultimate destination, right? Or was it Kandahar, Kabul? Kandahar. Okay, that's where you would. That's where you'd load up. That's where the Tokai brothers were. Yes, exactly. So, did you ever go out to their grow facilities? Did you see their cannabis farms or anything? Well, you know what? They didn't really grow it. Okay. They were, you know, they were dealers, um, but they did take us out. We went out to the King's Garden. I guess the King owned this big garden out of outside of Kandahar, and there's a big river out there. And what they do is they have a they partition it off and maybe. 100 yard by 100 yard squares and then it's passed through them and then the water runs through them and I, I don't know if individual people own them or what but you go out there with a bunch of people they lay out the huge blankets and you have your feast you know they bring out the food and mm. you spend the day out there and then that last thing always was the big pipe when you're done because, but on the way yeah go ahead on the way there 
we drove for about a mile or two next to the river, and the plants were 10 foot tall on the other side, thick. Oh, my All the gosh. way down the river. So they were right there and outside of Kandahar in plain sight. I mean, isn't this the birthplace of the cannabis seed, if I'm not mistaken? The Kush, doesn't it come, come from Afghanistan? Well, you know, I've, I have friends that are doing the, you know, the land race seeds and all the different things. I, so I get to follow a little bit of it. And apparently that's where it comes from. The northern Afghanistan is where that Kush yeah. originally came from and, you know, was spread from there. But they don't smoke cannabis. You said that in your book. They don't like that. Oh, no way. And we couldn't let them know, even know we like weed. Um, because they look down on it. it it's because it's not clear. Mm. See, you, you have to realize they're smoking the hash like you'd take LSD. They're right. looking for that completely clean, it cleanses all your senses, mm-hmm. you know, so you can, you can, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not comprehend more, but, but to just become a, more aware of your true self, uh-huh. it, you know, where the, where they, if you smoke the weed, it gives you kind of a body hit. Yeah. It's not just cerebral. Right. And that has a tendency to distract you from that clean trip. So they really look down on it. And I'm, I'm going to throw it in anyway. I know I said it in my book. But they didn't like any drugs. Uh-huh. You, you wouldn't find an Afghan taking drugs. Okay. They were just so against them. And that is, once again, because they really uh, held that clearness, you know, in reverence. Right. They wanted to always attain that clearness, and they just kind of looked down. And, and you know, most of them work, too. They all, you know, it took, in any economy, it takes a lot of people doing things to put it together. And, you know, they were a working group of people just like we were. Sure. But they must have had some power uh, and some protection, right? Because, I mean, what they were doing was still illegal, and, and, and they were at some risk. But they, I would imagine, because of the income they were generating they were able to pay off uh some of the law enforcement or something it just sounds like well, they had a lot of yeah con- yeah at first it really wasn't like that and you have to realize too when we started going over with Hayatullah and there was you know a lot of us his business went from 10 kilos to thousands of kilos yeah and consequently he became powerful monetarily in that town got it because he didn't just put it away and, you know, go off to his islands with his girlfriends. Every, all his money was put back into the economy. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that everywhere in the country, police were paid off by anybody doing anything. Yeah. But you're, saying, he, you're saying he put the money back into the economy. Was he sort of a guy that supported his community? And, and, uh, yes. Oh, it. yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And he was somewhat of a pious dude, right? I mean, he was he was really serious. Uh, and and I know there was times when uh, he would get angry with you guys. I mean, he wanted to. It was a certain way of doing things, and he was very orthodox in that, right? Yeah, but he was a beautiful person. He was compassionate. He was fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, he took LSD. He, he did took a couple of yeah, a couple of times. He took over his wife one night. I guess his favorite wife or whatever. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> when he's laughing yeah and what what yeah. was the report on that was that what oh he... no he had he had the experience because they really were having the experience because they, they were enlightened the hash. yeah their hash and their mind would shut down there's not a lot to it yeah if you get your mind to stop you can be aware of things there's almost like another sense it's not really another sense 
but there's an awareness that you can attain if you turn your brain off. Well, here's a hard question for you, I think. Um, was he, in his consciousness, uh, LSD trip, was he um, still working within the paradigms of the Muslim faith? Was he, you know, communing with Allah, or was he outside of that uh, consciousness? I, th I think once you, once you see that, once you see that intelligence that exists, that everything kind of it kind of emits life from itself. Once you see that, you realize that Allah and Jesus and everybody is part of that one consciousness. Right. And at that point, it kind of melts away the dogma. We're talking to Ronnie and Wendy Beaven. You go by Barry now, right? Yes, we sure yep. do. Uh, here on KXFM Radio on Laguna Talks. Um, so you make these incredible overland journeys and you're young enough to sleep in the car and not have aches and pains afterwards. And, you know, my gosh, you're, you, you guys have incredible fortitude, I must say. Um, but one passage really st stuck with me because you, you kept wanting to go big and bigger and bigger in terms of what you were bringing over. And at one point, you decided to buy an RV, a recreational vehicle, not in Europe, but here in the United States, and you did it, I think, in Iowa, so as to, I guess, attract less attention, and you spent months retrofitting it so that it could carry something like 1,800 pounds of hashish. Did I get that close to right? Sure. And then you had a buddy drive that thing to New York, and you put it on a ship, and you sent it to Amsterdam, and then you guys fly over, and you buy a Mercedes, so you have two vehicles, and you're posing, you cut your hair shorter, you hit it, and you're posing as a wealthy businessman. And you did that so that you, you thought it would attract too much attention to be, <laughs> to be in Kandahar with a U.S., uh, with a recreational vehicle from the States, loading it up with hashish. So you wanted to keep that on the outskirts of town, somewhere hidden, and then use the, the Mercedes as your courier vehicle each night. I'm t kind of telling the whole story, but... Um, but that was the that was the logic, right? Yes. Holy crap, man! How do you come up with these <laughs> ideas? It's unbelievable. I mean, who who thinks of this kind of stuff? And and you just, I mean, the the precision, the ideas of where to stash it, where it wouldn't be detected, and figuring out how many. I mean, I asked you this when we spoke briefly on the phone, but you know, you talked about your engineering background, but you seem to have a, a lot of facility and skills with just basic construction. And I know later in life you built your house with Wendy, you built a lot of stuff, but um, I, 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 your, 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 your ball sack is huge, but that's all I can say. <laughs> You're funny. I agree. Uh, yeah. God. So, um, so how did that go? I mean, did you, you want... Well, that, that, that scam was my funnest scam I ever did. And, and to and, set the record straight, the guy who co-authored that idea with you, he drove the RV by himself all the way from Amsterdam to... Uh, to... He drove with, with his wife and two-year-old child. Wow. And they drove all the way to... They went all the way to Madras in India. That is unbelievable. I can't imagine navigating those narrow, rocky passes in a big old... Must have been a beautiful RV. I mean, they built them really nice in the 60s and 70s, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, it was really nice. It still is. You know, I plugged it as the lazy days. 
I've been thinking about writing those guys and tell them they need my read my book <laughs> and tell them how, how great their vehicle is. I remember is. Lazy Days. Yeah, they're great. They're great. And, um, you know, we picked that out. We looked for a long time and picked that out as being the best one. And it just kind of worked out. You know, first thing we did was we wanted the motorhome, and we found we wanted the best one, and we got that, and we took it home. And then we started looking about where we could put all the stash places. Yeah. And then so it was like we didn't really have the general plan to begin with, but then, you know, we found what we wanted. And it, it was a lot of work, but it was really safe. It turned out to work really good. We got in trouble. They tried to stop us at the border coming into America from Canada, and they didn't find it. They searched it. So you shipped and, it to Canada first. You went to what, to Vancouver? Well, no. What happened was, and this was funny, I left him in Delhi, and when he put his car on a train to go to Madras, mm. and I flew home. And for some reason, he shipped that car to Singapore, and he shouldn't have done that. I thought I had warned him, but Singapore was the death penalty. Oh, my God. No killed. kidding. That's like the strictest yeah, place on earth. Yeah, and it's not necessary. He could have shipped it a lot of different places. But somehow he followed it over to Singapore, and from there he shipped it to Canada. And when he got it into Vancouver, they didn't—they just gave it to him. He just got in it and started driving towards the border. But when he got to the American border, they stopped him. They pulled him right over. Mm. And that was when they searched it pretty good. But they didn't find it. We built it in a way that they really couldn't find it. If they didn't know, they couldn't tear into the vehicle, and that's yeah. what happened. But he went over to Singapore to land that he had to be there when it came in, right? He must have been over. Yeah, you know what? I really didn't ever talk to him too much, but he had to. He had to fly from Madras to Singapore, wait for it, transfer it, and send I, it on. But he, he was pretty straight looking. He wore a hat and a you know, a coat, a plaid, you know, jacket and you yeah. know, he was older. He was older than us. And um, he just kind of looked I, like a I, I rich can't traveler. Believe, yeah, it's just so bizarre, the image of a lazy days. I mean, I don't think they exported those things to other countries, if I'm not mistaken. No. So this no, crazy-looking American vehicle being landed from Kandahar, or actually you didn't ship out of Kandahar. That's landlocked, right? Didn't you have to go to Yeah, yeah, he town? drove all the way through Pakistan, over the Khyber Pass, through Pakistan, into India, and then down to Madras. Oh, man. And then he lands it in Singapore and sends it to Canada, and you're you're on the one-yard line, and then you're bringing it over, and you almost get popped. Yeah, it was close, but uh, we built it. They couldn't figure yeah. it out, so, so, so it worked. So just to clarify for our listening audience, you guys were really um, on a mission. You, you didn't care so much about the money, and the money was plentiful, uh, it was more about funding LSD production. This is what the this is what the ultimate goal was. And also, you guys didn't you have a plan? Ultimately, didn't John want to move everybody to an island and grow your own food and surf and and uh, live this idyllic life? What weren't you saving money for that as well? Well, both of those are wrong. Okay, correct me. LSD stood on its foot from the day one. <laughs> All right. They didn't. The LSD thing was a different group of people. And did you read my review in there from um, from Tim Scully? I don't think about so. my book. No. Oh, it's in. It's on the website. Okay. But anyway, he said I was so happy to meet you after all this time because you actually were in a different. What do you call them? I can't remember. Section of the Brotherhood or something. Uh huh. Because the the LSD guys we're real separate. There was only a few of them. You know, it doesn't take that many people to make LSD and to do their thing. Right. The distribution system was us. So mm -hmm. that those guys kind of held to their own, but they never needed the hash money. Okay. So, it, so what was know? all your money being spent on? 
Well, a lot of it was been on the next scam. <laughs> well, let me give it. How much money did you make on that RV? Like, could you tell me roughly what the street value of that hashish was? Oh God, I don't know. Couple oh, million. Couple million. And and what yeah. was also striking to me, and you said this in the book, that it was always great to work with a group of investors that you trust. You had a, a network of people that believed in you, and anytime you needed to raise money for a scam, they were there. But boy, did they get they got rewarded for it too. Do they ever? <laughs> <laughs> but wow. here's the deal, though, and why I said that is it because. There's another thing that's existing here right in front of us that people don't look at, and that's your karma. Yes. And if you're not destined to have something and enjoy it, there's no way you can get it. Right. And if you're destined for people to drop gold at your feet, it'll happen. Right. And we found this group of people that their karma allowed us to make it work. Yeah. What a beautiful thing. So we kept thing. going. It was because of that we kept going back to these people. And you Not guys really were. I mean, nobody nobody snitched, right? I mean, you really got, you were with a group of people that could keep their mouths shut. Well, nobody nobody snitched that was involved with any of our groups. Yeah. There was a guy from the Brotherhood and his brother that got busted in Oregon that pretty much told on everybody, including me. But you, just for the record, you never did prison time. I've never been arrested. And you're one of the few brotherhood that can say that, right? I'm the only one. The only one. Everybody else. Yeah. Man, talk about good karma. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's what it is. It's not It's not because I'm smart or I'm safe. As yeah. you saw in my book, I did so many things. That so many scams, and you just, kept, you just kept going, too. I mean, there was, I guess, the just the, the actual scam itself was the adrenaline. I mean, you love pulling this stuff off, right? Yeah, but I didn't get a rush out of it. You know, Fat Bobby did, and a few of the guys, they were like crazy. They would jump into something like we landed all that um, that uh, um, lightning bolt, the weed that we, the famous load we took to Hawaii. When the boat came in, people like Bobby and those guys, they went out there. They just wanted to be part of it. They didn't. They didn't need to go there, and they were putting themselves in danger. But they really liked the excitement of it all. Yeah. I never cared for it. Yeah, I just you know I just do my thing and finish it and get it over. But it's true. A lot of those guys, you know, it was great for them. You know, that they could get in there and make it happen. Yeah, and it worked in a lot of other things too. And, and what about when he was just saying we took care of a lot of people? But you know, it was a thing that trickled down. And like I said, it was because what what drove the economy. There had to be an economy there. And what drove the economy, I said it in the movie, is the is the drugs. Yeah. You know, the psychedelics. I won't right. say drugs, I'll say psychedelics, you know, from all kinds of them because, it, you know, it, it worked all the way down. And, and people will tell you, and there's still people that tell me, they used to buy $10, um, you know, lids at Taco Bell. Yeah. And we're doing a beach there. I mean, that was the spot when you, people came from out of town. That's where they went. You know, our thing went like from us to our closest friends to people in the canyon. But then the canyon people, they dealt to the people from Taco Bell. Right. And they, you know, and it would get less and less all the way down the line, you know. 
and then they'd end up taking a small amount of weed over to Taco Bell and sell it, and that's how they existed. Yeah, so word got out, I and mean, I'm glad you segued over to Laguna because, of course, we all want to hear about you know Laguna at that time and the Brotherhood's impact, but um, I, I suppose people, young people, were hearing about Laguna from all over, and particularly Southern California, as a as a place, great place to hang out at this idyllic little seaside resort, great surf, sun, and drugs. And you, I mean, uh, can you paint a picture? I mean, you weren't in Laguna all that long, couple years or so. Couple of years, yeah. Yeah, two, but two years, well, three years. What turned you on about Laguna? Oh, man, it was so free, but, you know, it was a special time. That's when people all over the world or the Western world were discovering something inside themselves, and that's where the movement started, the long hair and, you know, the good music and more relaxed, but looking for a, you know, a warless world and better food and loving your brother and discovering things inside yourself it was a special time and, and you know, i was going to say a lot of people uh, uh, the vietnam war had a lot of lot to do with this as well because you know people are expanding their consciousness they're having great surf and um you know it's and it's just this love in in this town at the same time you know people are getting drafted to go to this war and and, and it creates a strong anti-war movement right i mean people were rejecting the status quo and the straight and narrow path and say there's there's got to be another way i'm not going to go work for the man i'm not going to go uh fight a war i don't believe in so as you said a confluence of things that were happening at the same time yeah that's right it was a, a different time there and the war was nasty and it was huge um protest against it yeah sure but i'll i'll tell you when i uh first started turning on I smoked weed and then I moved downtown Detroit and I hadn't taken LSD yet but we were really protesting the war handing out conscientious objector cards with lawyers numbers on them and uh, and and smuggling kids to Canada and that's what what we were doing at the time and then when we took LSD my first time I took LSD I spent my entire trip underneath a weeping willow tree, and when I came out in the morning, I went in the house and said, oh, my God, this is it. This will stop all wars. Yes. Everybody has to take this. We have to get this to everybody, and that was another reason I love the Brotherhood so much is because they thought that same way is that it really was the answer for people to love each other enough to never want to kill anybody and hurt anybody, including the earth. And I was a heavy environmentalist and, you know, I started in protest, but that didn't last long because once you get, you know, beat up or hit with one of those fire hoses, that it's horrible. It's just, I was like, okay, this isn't, this isn't going to work. I'm going to get these kids out of here. I'm going to take a different path. And, um, and LSD seemed to be the answer for really everything. Yeah. And, of course, now um, they're finally discovering, you know, clinical psychologists, the value of psychedelics and not just LSD, but psilocybin and ecstasy and, and, and as a real 
uh, a real successful therapy for things like PTSD and uh, right. end of life uh, traumas and uh, mm -hmm. right and and so you guys yeah. mentioned that you know the world would be a very possibly a very different place had they not made it illegal when they oh, did absolutely. and if it absolutely. was and we also had to deal with you know when when every I always say why does everybody nitpick hippies like oh they did this they didn't do anything individual people did things just like you know you get a whole bunch of people together it's, it's going to be hard for everybody to be on the same page but it, the thing with hippies was is they took in everybody they loved every free love is unconditional love and consequently we did get lots of guys from vietnam that we were really you know with kid gloves helping them get over this horrific trauma and the other thing no one ever mentions is thousands of kids were taken into institutions and given electric shock treatment. Mm. And we had to rehab them. And mm. that wasn't pretty or easy. And so consequently, hippies at a very young age that didn't know what they were doing but were looking to LSD for the answers to merge everybody's consciousness together and let them let go of of everything else and move forward in a positive, constructive yeah. way and love themselves and love everybody. Yeah. And that that's what it was. And uh, to me, the brotherhood encompassed all of those qualities, and that's why I, I gave up everything and put everything I had into doing whatever I could to help with either the hash or the LSD or whatever. I was a, I was a multi -person. You're in. And, and Wendy, did you spend time in Laguna as well? Uh, yeah. I lived in the canyon for a while. Well, I did a lot of business there first, and then I lived in the canyon for uh, a little while, and then I moved to the ranch. On Woodland Drive, Dodge City? Yeah. I lived yeah, she was famous for starting the White House on fire. It's still right there when oh, you come in the canyon. Yeah, but everybody needs to <laughs> I didn't even heard it. It was just... Candles and curtains. Oh, they yeah. all mix. It was the scour of the hippies. What about what about Mystic Arts? Were you guys involved with that? Yeah, uh, actually, I didn't work in Mystic Arts, but I hung out there a lot. And um, that sounded like a I, very I, cool place. Oh, it was totally cool, and yeah. it was a center when you went into town. I, I stayed out of town a lot. I've always been kind of to myself, and especially after I started smuggling. But you could hang out in Mystic Arts or around it, you know, all day long. But it had that beautiful meditation in the back, you know, room. And we would take acid in there, you know, at night. And, and it was really And really Dion Wright's famous mandala? Dion's painting, yeah, was on the far wall. And, man, that thing's amazing when you're expanded. Yeah. It's amazing anyway. Yeah, But yeah. amazing when you're expanding. Well, I've had... But you know what? To, to get back to the, to the research, the research community right now is just about where they were 50 years ago yep and you know that's why i say that if they hadn't have made it illegal and went on the warpath with the people that were you know trying to turn on the world they uh it would have been a different world we're in now now we're back to it and the truth of it is that that experience is undeniable so eventually, it's going to take hold. You know, it's it's like the cats out of the bag. Yeah. Through history, all of the prophets and 
the p- people, they all ate something. Yep. And it showed them the, the uh, you know, what was going on. And the psychedelics are just really a shortcut. Not that you can't attain the liberation without psychedelics, but the path is long and hard. Yeah. And seems- the psychedelic with the proper guidance is right there at your door. Yeah, the proper so- guidance you mentioned, you know. Uh, LSD got a bad name uh, at at a certain point as a party drug and people ODing and having these terrible experiences. And Richard Alpert, you know, the father of LSD, wrote his book, uh, LSD, My Problem Child, because he also took it as a religious and spiritual sacrament. And he thought it kind of lost its its original purpose. Um, But I've noticed that in recent studies, they've also gone back and uh, interviewed a lot of people of your generation who uh, took a lot of LSD, and they couldn't find anything wrong. They couldn't find any lingering problems with their minds. In fact, they tested a higher IQ on general than, than the general public, and most of them said it was one of the most important things they'd done in their life. And... Um, and so we're discovering all these years later, like anything, everything can be abused, everything in moderation, right? But if you take it with, with purpose, as you said, with a good guide who can help you. I noticed, uh, I've read that you guys often had companion books like the Tibetan Book of the Dead and things like that. Um, then most people have profound, life-changing, transformational experiences. Yes, no, that's true. And I know people that only had one. One experience. And it changed their whole life. I've got a language teacher friend of mine. He's a linguist, and he made he's made it his lifelong thing to t- teach the Tibetan language. And he took LSD one time. Yeah, look at that. He had got back from Vietnam. He was a cook or something. Yeah, he, was, he was a soldier. He was a soldier in Vietnam, got back. And uh, he was went out with his buddies, and he took LSD, and he thought he was dying. He went through the whole death thing, yep. and he saw something, and it changed his life. He went on to do three-year retreat. He became a llama and from the one experience. Yeah. And that's not a sole story. There's other people that have the same thing, that uh, they saw something. Wasn't there a Laguna police officer, and not Neil Purcell, but um, uh, <laughs> one other uh, officer at the time who I think— may have had that experience because he turned out in his later life to become kind of a hippie. Do you know what I'm talking no, about? See, I, no, I don't. I yeah, don't yeah. know that. We yeah. Only know the other yeah, we only know the other guy. Yeah. We, I, we, find, we find it really hard to believe that Purcell still holds a grudge. I mean, the guys that fought in Vietnam, the Vietnamese are living in their towns and they have markets and, you know, everybody's all getting along. And the Purcell still hates us because we were hippies. I know. How can that even? How can that even grasp that? Yep, yep. Those were. I mean, people. Even though we we uh, mythologize this period that you guys were in. I mean, as you pointed out, people were killed and imprisoned for long periods of time for doing something that we today recognize as being righteous. Yeah, I yeah. know it. I made a mistake there, and I had my fact checker uh, wife call me. Or text oh, I me. know what you said. I, I should have said Albert Hoffman, not Richard Albert. That's right. Sorry about I wasn't that. Gonna, I, I thought that was a goodbye. I appreciate it. Hey, I want to be respectful <laughs> of your guys' time. There's so much to unpack here, and um, I'd, I'd love to, you know, talk about your relationship and what you guys have endured. And you know, I want let me give a plug to your book. It is available on Amazon, right? No. 
Uh, where no, can you it's get only it? Avail- available online, and you have to go to the website. Um, you can find it. You know, if you just put Ronnie Bevan in the Google, you'll find me in my book. That's B-E-V-A-N, but, Ronnie Bevan, yeah, Brotherhood B-E-V-A-N. Hashish. Yeah, but the website is website. Brotherhoodhashish.com. Website. Dot no, website. Dot website. Okay. Yeah, and the book's available there. Yeah, and you're working on another book. Yeah, we're working on another book, and it's a different book completely, and I'll plug it right now. Wendy and I had the unfortunate experience of losing our teenage boys in a car accident. Uh-huh. They were 16 and 19 years old. And because of all our knowledge of how the inner workings of life and that life goes on, we really were struggling with it. We were close to our boys, as close as you could be to anyone. And we decided that we would look to try to find their reincarnations. And their new book, it's called From One Life to the Next. It'll be out next month. And it's a story about us actually finding them. Oh, my God. And uh, and did you have a did you meet them? Were you able to? Uh... Oh yeah, no, we've known them for twenty years. We've mm-hmm. been in contact. I talked to the boy. He's a, the boy, the one, our oldest boy incar- incarnated as a Tibetan in India in a refugee settlement. Mm-hmm. And we talk to him every morning on the phone. So you do this straight. This, you, you don't need any we, psychedelics to help you get there. This is something you can access on your own. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we didn't take any psychedelics during the whole time that we were searching for them, and we had a lot of help. It's a really amazing story, and, you know, it took a lot of people to help us, and in the end, we ended up going through five Tibetan lamas that finally pointed the way close enough to find both of them. You know, I just want to point out that I didn't know this Um and certainly the end of your uh, of Brotherhood Hashish, you spend quite a bit of time really talking about family life with you and Wendy raising these boys. And, I mean, what a devoted family and parents you were. I mean, you became their little league coach. Then they got an affinity for, oh, you moved to Florida because uh, one of your sons uh, had, had a breathing problem and the air was better. And they got into skateboarding and you opened a skateboard shop and then you went... Or am I, I might get this backwards because I know there was San Diego. You guys were living next to yeah. Tony Hawk. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's all right. And then you went to, and then they became snowboarders. And you, you were there, you know, basically uh, embracing their 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 interests full on. I mean, you you enabled them to, to pursue these passions. And so, you really had a beautiful uh, love affair with these boys. And you were able to, you had the the, really you had the privilege of time. It looked like to spend with them. You. You know, you, you and Wendy. I don't want to discount your contribution too. So uh, I, I guess I, I can't even begin to fathom the the pain of you know outliving your children and in such a sudden way. And it sounds as if you guys have so many tools and spirituality to to deal with your grief in a positive way that this book could really be an inspiration to many people. Well, we're hoping so, and. Um... You know, like I said, you're going to be surprised. The story is quite amazing. And it, to be truthful, and it's also it's an unparalleled story. We don't know anyone, and no one else knows anyone that has searched for the reincarnation of their children and found them, especially Westerners. Yeah, now, now, you now, know, you, you, you have the... Go ahead. You have the Tibetan background, I know, because you've told me about Robert Thurman and a few of your experiences. Yeah. And you know that the Tibetans do find their teachers. 
Yes. That, that's a pretty common thing, and that's what tokus mean, is that they had found their teacher before, and then they find all the big teachers. But those numbers of people are very small. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it's, it's very few, and it's not common at all. They don't look for their children. Um, but anyway, the, through the process, Winnie and I actually were Dallas, and through the process, we kind of were drawn into Tibetan Buddhism, and then it was the Tibetan Buddhist that pointed the way. So that's just, you know, a little short synopsis of the story. But the book really is about our journey, how we started out not knowing anything, where are we going to look. We know that you reincarnate. We don't know when. We don't know where. But we do know that life goes on, and they're going to be born somewhere, and that we made our mind up. We made a pact to find them. And this was the day after they died. Right. I was going to ask we, that. I mean, was there a period of uh, you guys resolved right away to, to find them? Right away. Right we, away. Well, they had told us when we were so close, and they had told us that they, we were never going to be separated, that we were going to be their children. And so we never had to worry about being separated from them. And Wait, then they died. When did they, they tell you this? When we were growing up, they told us their whole life. We we talked about it quite often. Yeah, they told us all the time that we, you know, don't worry, we're gonna, you're gonna be my kid. And in, a, in a next life, in a in a future yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. So they were already exposed to this concept, or I mean, you would introduce them to but reincarnation. They knew it. They we knew didn't it. Really oh my God! Wow. Them. And they were really turned on. They both were really turned on and really high, uh, wise beings we always considered it a real honor to be with them and to do anything they wanted to do because they were such fun guys but when they died first you know like ronnie said we knew immediately that oh well they're not going to be able to have us now so we're going to have to find them and i kind of liken it to you know if i go to the mall and and i lose my kids i'm not going to just go home and say oh well they're somewhere I'm going to find them, and I'm going to spend the rest of my life hunting them down and finding them. And that's what we had decided to do. And we were just real fortunate to be able to find them in basically a timely manner and be able to support them and be with them uh, for the re- – we'll be with them for the rest of our lives. And where are they now, you said? Uh, the one uh, son was reborn as a girl, and she's in Florida, and uh, we ended up moving there. I took care of my mom, and I was their nanny for like seven years for our reincarnated a child and her sisters. And um, so that was wonderful to get to be part of her life during her formative years. And she knows we were her parents. There's no, you know, there's nothing between us. It's the same. They're so the same. And then with um, Andy, who reincarnated as a Tibetan, his name's Timpa now, when we found him, you know, it was uh, a little more difficult because of the language barrier, but it wasn't difficult because of the love. We knew immediately, he knew immediately, and um, we have built him a home, we built the family a business, uh, and we have been taking care of them and him, you know, for the last 20 years, and we talk to him every morning which is his night before he goes to bed so he says good morning to us and we say good night to him and and i i don't know if this we can do this in a very uh, brief moment but how did you find them okay that's a teaser it's even blown our mind yeah uh to write the book we kept a journal yeah uh, because every oh yeah i think that's probably important and that's really important we kept a journal and then we transcribed the journal and then we had to turn that into an actual 
uh, book that you could comprehend. And re- real quick, what happened was right after the boys died, things started happening with their friends. They were coming to them and their dreams and all these auspicious things were happening. And they kept coming and tell us that finally, you know, we realized that information about where they were could come from anywhere. So we started journaling everything the kids were telling us, trying to look for clues. And because of that, we kept that journal for like six years. And the whole story's in the journal. So it took you six years to find find them? No, actually, we found the girl in three, and we found the boy in about three and a half, maybe four. And you guys so actually were... moved to Florida to help raise this year? Well, oh, you're... yeah. We were there for years. And and their biological parents were, were in the picture? Oh, God, yeah. In fact, we wouldn't have been able to have the relationship with either the boy in India or the girl here if the parents had to let us into their lives. And they understood intuitively, immediately, that you were... Their parents. It as wasn't well. intuitive immediately. The the ones, of course, in India it was, but that's a long story. We'd already been there a couple of times, but in Florida, we knew the parents before. We knew them from when they were teenagers, and they actually even knew we were searching for the boys when they had the girl. That is a remarkable story. I don't know that I've ever heard of anything like this. This is really as <laughs> breathtaking, and and what yeah. a beautiful way to. Um, not have to grieve, but to know that they're okay. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. There was a, a lot of pain before we found them, but and how anyway, old, how you, old is this girl now? Your daughter? They're or, both twenty-two. Both twenty-two. Funny, yeah, it's a funny thing. You know, they died together. They were born a week apart. Have they ever met? No, but they know about each other, and they talk to each other. They write messages and stuff, and they've known about each other ever since they were little. This is incredible. Really amazing story. And and um, what are they doing now, did you say? Well, because of the COVID, Kelsey's out. She was going to college. Okay. And she and she can't get that. And then, unfortunately for Tempe, he just graduated. He spent a year in this big city becoming an airline hostess. I mean, mm. host. Uh-huh. And now the airlines are down. Right. So, so he's got nothing. But they're okay. They're living. Oh, they're fine. They're, they're healthy. healthy. We build a house. We build a. I build a house in India with my own hands for them, for their family. A beautiful three-bedroom house. How long did that take you? Oh, uh, about five years. But that's because we had to go back. But we only went spring and fall. Yeah. We had to come home and go back. And, and work. yeah, we had to go make money and then go back <laughs> again. Go back and spend it all. I, I, come it, back. I mean, this this story is more amazing than your than your hashish smuggling. I think so. Yeah, we think so. Yeah, and and. What a devotion and dedication to build to do go build to dedicate your life to this. You guys are amazing parents, I must say. And, and well, you're amazing. We're all one. Yes. You know, we well, knew when we had them, their births were auspicious. My pregnancies were auspicious. Everything was so far out with them, and it was always so magical. And the magic still continues. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that, Wendy. We're a happy ending to what could be just such a tragic story. And you guys, you're enlightened beings. You you really need to spread this fairy dust to the world, and I hope this book does this for you. So do we. Yeah. And um, same way, will that be available at brotherhoodhashish.com? Well, no, but it's available at reincarnationstory.website. Reincarnationstory, that, okay, dot website. They're both dot website. Yeah, reincarnation story and brotherhood hashish. Okay, I gotta website. ask you who have you guys given any thought to who what actor and actress should play you guys in the biography of your life? <laughs> who, uh-huh. 
No, it's funny, though, but you know who I really like is the guy that played me in Orange Sunshine. Wow. Let's talk about that for a second. So you guys um, approved of that version of the, 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 I mean, you know, it's... No, a not fiction- the book, the, the movie. The movie, I know. It was a fictionalized okay. documentary. And um, just to be clear, the book was written by an Orange County journalist who I think is Nicholas Shaw, and he uh, yeah. was the editor at the Orange County Weekly, OC Weekly. And he only had access to a few people because you guys weren't talking then. And so a lot of the original Brotherhood said that story was rather skewed. Um, but then this young filmmaker, William Kirkley, comes along, and he wants to dramatize the story, and he badgers John Grig- I mean, Carol Griggs and Mike Randall repeatedly until they beats him down until they say, okay, we'll tell our story, we trust you. And was that story rendered faithfully in your guys' view? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. He let us, he, he let he. You know, he he is an, a, a remarkable, amazing movie maker. I agree. And, you know, it is, um, of course, it's a movie. and um, Yeah, you have to keep in mind it's a movie. Yeah, yeah. and uh, the, a c- couple things, you know. But he let us all view it, and there were a couple things we wanted taken out, and he took them out. Oh, that's cool. So, you know, that is that is just unheard of. Yeah. So as a person, I don't think you could find a nicer. He comes from a super nice family. I love his mother. His mother and I are good friends and his grandmother and I are good friends. (laughs) I thought it was done beautifully. And the music track was done by a local uh, musician here. Um, Oh, so talented. Yeah. Re- really recreated the feeling. Um, uh, yeah, uh, gosh. Anyway, it'll come to me. He's got a radio show here, I should know. Uh, Costa, I know Matt, it. Matt Costa. Matt Costa, yeah. yes. Brilliant yeah. musician. Just brilliant. And he, you know, he's got that on uh, vinyl, too, that you can get there at um, Otto's place. What, what's yeah, that? Otto, Sound Spectrum. Sound Spectrum, yeah. yeah. He, I, he has it in there if anybody's interested in getting the, That's a great the vinyl one. He's a great he's guy. Yes, yeah. He's a Really great guy. Super talented. So, you know, yeah, yeah, super talented. We can all agree. <laughs> yeah. And um, you guys still in touch so, with Mike and Carol? Oh, yeah. Yeah, one is really Carol's good friend, and yes. they talk all the time. Yeah. We don't see them, though. They're busy with their life. But I do want to – let me go back to Orange Sunshine, the book. Yeah. Uh, Nick, Nick Scow's a friend of mine. We've, we've made amends, and uh, he has publicly admitted that his book isn't right. Hmm. And he's a great, talented writer. You know, he wrote Very that uh, Kill the Messenger. It's a movie you can watch on Amazon. Uh, he's written a couple other books. He, you know, and he was editor for, what, 17 years at OC Weekly? Yep. I was with him the day that he lost his job, and it was all political. I, w- I, was, I was having breakfast with him. But anyway, that, that, that's the only thing I want to say is that there was so much in that book that other people – contributed to him and he didn't have any way to check it so consequently there's just a lot of things and you know when you read that book you have to just if you're going to read it take it as a grain of salt because a lot of things in there aren't really true no they're not they're true just at not all. True. and it it really upset carol and i we were going to have book burnings and everything oh, else no. and oh. we uh we read it uh we didn't want to but michael made us read it and we were so appalled by so many of the things because it goes against brotherhood principles 
every other chapter, and it's just it's was so bad we we couldn't even believe it. But like Ron has made up with Nick, and I'm more of a rebel. But um, what what it's, Wendy? When you say uh, so many things in the chapters went against what the Brotherhood stood for, what do you mean? What give me an example? Well, well, we'll give you a real bad one. Is they they it says in there that when we'd bring in the scams, we'd all meet up at the ranch and we'd we'd sit in a circle and pass our wives around. Yeah, that's such bullshit. Oh, sorry, wow. oh, I'm so sorry. That's all right. It, it's real bad. It's it's really bad. It's as bad as you can get, and uh, it was a, a disgusting uh, view of what the brotherhood was. And the brotherhood wasn't party party or. You know, they were so, it, it was the slam, yeah. and it was really unfortunate, and Nick got taken into, you know, after the Brotherhood left Laguna Beach, other people stayed there and said they were Brotherhood and did things that we would never, ever do or condone, ever. Mm-hmm. And consequently, that gave us a bad name, and none of us knew it because we were all on the run in different parts of uh, America and Europe and didn't know until everything, uh, everybody got released and we all got to get back together and we, we came back and found out what was going on. We were in shock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why we liked William to come and do the movie to, um, you know, uh, make amends for us to rebuild our reputation or to tell the true story. And yeah. no one, like I said, no one is perfect. You know, some of the brothers fell from grace and recovered or didn't recover. And so we're people. Of course. You know? And you were <laughs> all not... young kids, too. I mean, come and on. And we were so young. Yeah, we and things, you know, things happen that for whatever reason, it's karma. It's all karma, what you can handle. But, yeah, yeah that well, that was an, an unfortunate thing for everybody. And I think especially for Nick, because he is so talented that to have that... Um, that dark spot on his reputation. I, I yeah. feel bad for that. Yeah. That is a shame because it was a riveting. I mean, it was my first exposure and I, you know, I didn't know what was fact and what was fiction. I, I know what you're referring to. Some of these flashier guys that came along that were really kind of sleazy in town that, that, that passed themselves off as brotherhood who weren't part of that. And, um, that would never have gave you guys a bad it. name. <clears throat> yeah. And, you know, the other thing that came through that movie, to the, to me, the glue that held it together was such an epic love story. And, right. you know, for Carol and Mike to, to finally, you know, uh, realize they loved each other uh, and they, you know, even though, and they both loved John, but, you know, to then make a life together was really a beautiful part of that story, I thought. Yeah, it still is. They're beautiful people, and I, I love them. Carol and I have uh, get to have our experiences every now and then. Uh, you know, by the grace of God, and That's awesome. we're, we're, we're thankful for it, and we always joke with each other. We're the only two people we know that say, hey, you want to go out? And the other one says yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very so cool. We're still good good yeah. on that level, and uh, we love it. And I love her since forever, and she I think she loves me since forever. So Yeah, well, you guys have lived many lifetimes, I and mean, the amount of life that you've packed into this one is pretty is pretty amazing. And yeah. let me ask you about one other guy and who's featured in that book quite a bit, but I didn't see him much in the movie, and that's Eddie Padilla. Mm, yeah. I'm. You know what? I'm not going to go there. Okay. I'm going to let you go with that one. I don't yeah. even know. I, I 
But I, I know everything about Eddie that you could know. Okay. I've known him since we were in Anaheim. But, you know, there's a lot come up, and uh, I don't know why. No, that... We don't have to go there. You know, I've just I've followed him. I read his book about being in the Peruvian jail, and uh, yeah. that was. Yeah, we can talk. We can talk privately sometime about okay. that. You got it. <laughs> well, I really, really appreciate your time. We've gone way over what we were supposed to, but hey, I don't have anything else to do. So I, I really, uh, it's been, it's been a real stimulating chat with you guys. And um, what is uh, so? Uh, I know you had mentioned uh, Ron that you guys had moved to you're in Fallbrook now, and and you're really focusing on writing and this is what you see yourselves doing now and what else is uh what else keeps you guys busy uh, uh during the day well you know well, we have our garden we grow a lot of food nice and then um other than that really we've been pounding on these books brother yeah she's took two years and you know it's funny that you taught you to said about how i talked about these things in all the different cities there was so much research it was freaking unbelievable did you, and calling, did, did you have to like, calling, re, go ahead. Sorry, I'm, I interrupted. Call, well, calling my friends. Hey, remember when this happened? What do you remember? That's and, what I was curious about. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, the travel times. Okay. Well, we know we traveled from, you know, we drove from Turkey, this one place in Turkey, and we got to the border, you know, and then as I remember, we did that in two days. Well, how far is that? So then you get your thing out and you realize, okay, well, that's, you know, 600 miles. Yeah, we probably did do that in two days. Yeah, with no and Google Maps. You know Maps. what I mean? Yep. Yeah, and then you go from there. So there was a lot of that. I imagine. How do you spell to Brits? You, well, know, and, you know, it went on and on and on. And to be truthful, you know, we told you we had the journal that for our new book. That was easy. Yeah. You know, we just turned that journal into a book and then added in the you know the last details. few years of the details with, with the kids but but this book man you know i hesitated writing it for years and i went to my one buddy and he told me just go home and write one story so i did mm. and i wrote one story and then i wrote another one and then i put the one in front of the other one and that's really how the book manifested and that's it went from there to another story to another story where does it go find the slot yeah. And then when we got it all together, then we could start growing through the whole thing and yeah. figuring the timelines out. And, man, it was a lot of work. That's why it took two years of constant I work. And, you know, we don't have weekends. No, I was we thinking to myself, how does he remember all these hotels and uh, cities and meals and everything? And I, I was really tickled by the fact that after you would send the, the vehicle back and the job was basically done, You'd make your way to New Delhi, I think it was, and stay at the Intercontinental and, you know, five-star hotel, and you'd just live large and just eat the food there and get your shower. And I was like, oh, yeah, why not? Job well done. You know, you, you, it wasn't like you were, you know, you, you, you took care of yourself. Yeah, and that was the fun part, too. And especially if you came out of Kandahar or Pakistan where it was just dust and not even food you could eat. Yeah, you know we are vegetarians, and they mainly ate meat. There isn't that much in the desert. No, I'd imagine. But um, so, and you guys yeah. knew, knew when you couldn't eat the food at all because the risk of dysentery, getting sick. You knew when when you had to like rely on your canned goods that you brought from Europe. I guess right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I packed our vehicle in Virginia. I went to a health food store and took two army footlockers filled with food. Wow. And I cooked. I cooked that whole way, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You're a good planner. 
Well, yeah, I am. But I wanted to tell you one more thing about Ronnie. You'll never find him talking bad, and I know he's going to get embarrassed, but you'll never find him talking bad about anybody. And it has been my pleasure and honor to be his wife and take care of him and let him fulfill any little wish or dream he ever had. And he's brilliant, genius. He's self-taught with everything he's done with building. And he learned how to do the whole computer all by himself without taking a class, figure out all these programs, figure out how to do the pictures. Every, he amazes, every day he still amazes me. Well, Wendy, I only hope that my partner would say those same kind of things about me at some <laughs> point in my life. Wow. And, 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 you know, Ronnie, I want you to return the favor, but I, I, I want to say that you, you definitely, it comes clear in your book, your devotion to Wendy and what an epic love affair it has been from the start. And I'm sure, you know, and, and also going through these tragedies and everything, and you guys have built houses together, moved around the world, done so many amazing things. So uh, it, it, you just sound like a fabulous couple and you really honor each other. And uh, Ronnie, what do you want to say about Wendy? <laughs> Come on. Well, I'll tell you what I what I say about Wendy. You know, almost every person we've known for years and years, they always tell me how lucky I am to be with Wendy. And why? But, well, just because of the way she is, everything about her. <laughs> well, but she certainly sounds like she side, has a lot of talents too. She can cook food all the way to Kandahar. Oh no, she no, she can cook food. You can't believe it. Anybody would tell you that. Any of our friends. Yeah, and she's she's an amazing cook, but it's way more than that. She's as amazing as I am, but in her own ways. And together, we made the dynamic team throughout our life. There's no doubt about it. But the funny thing I want to tell you is, no one ever tells me, tells Wendy how lucky she is to be with me. <laughs> and, and, and it's funny. We were at a book signing at a movie showing there in Laguna, at Laguna Arts, and um, you know, all the kids were running around and everything, and I was up doing the book signing. And the girl came up. I said, "Hey." Go up and tell Wendy how lucky she is to be with me. And she went into she went into the kitchen and she told Wendy. She said, "You know, you're really lucky to be with Ron." And she turned around. She said, "What'd you say?" Like she said, "This feels like a setup." Oh, Wendy, too smart. So she knew immediately. Yeah. So anyway, that's just the two sides of the coin. But I got no, it. You know, you, you could just tell from the book. I'll tell you what, Rick Arnold, the local Laguna guy. I don't know if you know him there. He's been there forever. And um, he, uh, after he read Hashish, he said, Wendy's more badass than most guys I know. Yeah. And after hearing <laughs> hearing you in Detroit, badass Detroit, what you were doing, I, I that absolutely confirms it. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway. Thank you, hey, guys. Well, I hope we, yeah. yeah, I hope we get together, Billy. We Love to hang out with you guys. Yeah, we have a lot yeah. to share and, uh, and love to talk Buddhism with you more sometime. And maybe we can get you by, guys back on the show. And after this pandemic ends we do it in live in person um, that'd, be, that'd be fun all right great talking to you guys wendy ronnie thank you very much uh the book is brotherhood hashish and the new one is from one life to the next the reincarnation story oh. yes all right i can't wait to read it best of luck to you guys thank you so much Thanks all right so take care now okay. yeah good night good night bye-bye bye-bye bye. Bye. And that's our show for you guys tonight. Hang on. We'll be back with some music, and I'll see you next week.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.